I wonder uh, what your favourite lunchtime food is. Uh, I wonder if you're a sandwich person. I reckon there are a few things better than a really good salad sandwich. I'm also uh, quite partial to the old toasted sandwich, especially in the wintertime. I imagine you have a favourite sandwich that's your go-to lunch. As a kid, I can remember loving jam sandwiches, but I also remember and have a memory of my uncle taking two slices of bread out and pretty much putting everything from the fridge in between those pieces of bread, peanut butter, pickles, tomatoes, cheese, meat, whatever he could get his hands on, that seemed to be his favourite lunchtime food. Legend has it that the sandwich was invented by a man called John Montagu. He was the fourth Earl of Sandwich. And apparently he invented the sandwich back in 1762. They say he was one of those English aristocrats who also happened to be a problem gambler. His gambling was so bad that he, he didn't have time to leave the gambling table to go and have his lunch. And so one day he ordered one of his servants to bring him some lunch to eat at the table. And they brought two pieces of bread with a bit of roast beef sandwiched between them and the sandwich was born. Now, I don't know if you believe that story or not. It it seems a little bit far-fetched to me because as surely as people, surely as long as people have been eating bread, they have been putting things in between those bits of bread. Earlier, Ellie read to us a section of Mark's gospel where we heard Jesus speaking about the one who would betray him as one who would dip bread into the bowl with me. It may not have been called a sandwich back then, but I I reckon people have been eating bread with fillings in it for a lot longer than John Mantagu had a gambling issue. And my guess is that they were eating sandwiches or something similar to that right back in Jesus' day. And I want you to see this morning that our gospel author, Mark, was quite fond of sandwiches. Perhaps not the bread and meat or the bread and salad sort of sandwiches, but that he really liked using literary sandwiches, a device to help us understand the text better. If you've been with us for a while, you might remember me telling you about Mark. This is the gospel we've been working through for the last year or so. Mark was not necessarily an eyewitness to all the things that Jesus did and said. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. It seems likely that Mark got his information about what Jesus did and said from his friend, the Apostle Peter. It may not have happened this way, but in my mind, I always think about Mark listening to Peter and then writing little notes about what Peter said to him and about what Peter saw Jesus do. And when I close my eyes, I kind of think about Mark in his study with a whole lot of post-it notes up on his wall, each recounting a little episode of what Jesus said and did. And Mark's job was then to order those post-it notes and to come up with the gospel account that we have today. And it seems that one of his favourite ordering devices looks a little bit like a sandwich. Mark uses this technique all the time throughout his gospel, but we see it particularly clearly today. Two bits of bread with a meaty filling. In this case, the bits of bread are verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11. And I want you to see this, so I'd love you to open your Bibles if you haven't already done so and turn to chapter 14 of Mark. These two pieces of bread bracket our story. Let me read to you verses 1 to 2 to start off with. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. 
but not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. I want you to see here, the chief priests and the teachers of the law are scheming to, to kill Jesus. These are people who hate Jesus. They want him dead. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, uh, sorry, they want him dead. Now, now have a look down at verses 10 and 11 of the passage. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So here we have Judas, who's one of the twelve, betraying Jesus. And again, I want you to see that, well, he hates Jesus. He's willing to give Jesus over to those who will kill him. And so these verses, they kind of act like two bits of bread or like brackets in a story. Both verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11 are about those who, who hate Jesus, about those who want to see Jesus killed. The religious leaders, well, Jesus has been doing battle with them now for a couple of chapters. But also one of his own hating him. So that's the two bits of bread in our sandwich. Now let's look at the filling of the sandwich, the meat, the bit between the two bits of bread, verses 3 to 9. What are these verses all about? Well, if the bread was about those who hate Jesus, the meat is about someone who's devoted to him, someone who loves him. And there's a contrast here that really grabs our attention. Let me read these verses to you again. Uh, Elise has read them, but let me read them again. And I want you to see the devotion to Jesus here. Verse 3, while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Do you see the sandwich here? And I think the technique is, is designed to help us see the contrast between the hatred of Jesus by Jesus and the religious, Judas and the religious leaders and the devotion to Jesus by this unnamed woman. On one hand, we have Jesus' disciples and the religious leaders who, who should have known all about Jesus. On the other hand, we have the unnamed woman and she's devoted to him. And the effect of all of this, this sandwich, I think, is that, well, it asks the question of us, doesn't it? Are you with the religious leaders and with Judas? Do you hate Jesus or are you with the woman? Are you devoted to Jesus? That's what I want to look at with you this morning. That's where we're going today. I think that's the big idea in this passage. Uh, let's explore it a little bit more. We'll come back with me to verse 3 in this passage. And I just want to point out a few things as we work our way through these verses. We learn that Jesus is now in Bethany, which is a small town just outside of Jerusalem. He had been uh, previously on the Mount of Olives, and now he's made his way to Bethany, and he's there in the home of Simon the leper. Uh, it's worth noting that 
in the first case, isn't it, that he's with Simon the leper. Now, presumably, this, this man is no longer suffering from leprosy, and maybe he's someone who has been healed by Jesus. We're not told or given more information about this in Mark, but perhaps Jesus is there to celebrate with this man about his healing. Whatever the case, Jesus is reclining at the table and an unnamed and presumably uninvited woman arrives. And she has with her an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Again, we're not given much information about the perfume or the jar, but it seems that to open it, you have to break the jar. In other words, this is a use once kind of thing. She can't save any for later. Once the jar is broken, it has to be emptied. And so the woman breaks the jar and pours all of it over Jesus' head. And I think what we're supposed to see, aren't we, is the extravagance of this act. Nothing is reserved. Because the jar is broken, it's not like she can save a few drops for her wedding day or some other important event in her life. It's all used up. And so some of the other dinner guests become indignant and frustrated and angry, it seems, because this was a really expensive bottle of perfume and it's all being consumed. We're told it was more than a year's wages. I went on Google this week and looked up what the average wage in Australia is. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the full-time average ordinary hours wage in Australia at the moment is about $1,800 a week. If you worked all 52 weeks in the year, then that would be somewhere around $90,000 a year. Perfume, we're told, was worth more than a year's wages, maybe $100,000 or something like that in today's money. This is really, really expensive. I looked it up this week. It is still possible to spend this amount of money on perfume, believe it or not. There's a bottle of perfume called Gianni Viva Solomon 6. It retails for about $90,000. I've got a picture on the screen just in case uh, you recognize this. You might have one at home somewhere, I'm not sure. In our world today, there are some strange things to spend lots of money on, aren't there? You know, we have people like Russian oligarchs who, well, mostly their super yachts are now impounded, but they spend their money on super yachts or movie stars who seem to be able to splurge on one luxury item after another listen to another preacher speaking at this topic in the week and he he says elton john was rumored to have spent something like four hundred and fifty thousand dollars on cut flowers once just seems silly doesn't it and ridiculous four hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of cut flowers imagine how much hay fever that would give you if it was in your house it seems silly until we kind of stop and think about what the money could have been used for elsewhere And then it starts to seem off, doesn't it? And wasteful and maybe even sick. And the other dinner guests at this this dinner party, they seem to be thinking the same way as that because they chastise the woman and they complain about the perfume being spilt out and used up in this way. The money could have been given to the poor. And that sounds really sensible, doesn't it? Years worth of money used up in one go. And probably a few drops of perfume would have done the trick. And yet in verse 6, Jesus says, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I want you to know that elsewhere in the Bible, we see that Jesus has real concern and care for those who are poor. 
I want to show you one instance. If you come back in Mark to chapter 10 of Mark, we're going to come back to chapter 10 a few times this morning, but if you come back to chapter 10, verse 21, you'll see that Jesus had been speaking to a rich man who'd always strived to keep the commandments. And Jesus says to him in verse 21, One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Jesus is concerned with the poor. But there's something about this woman's action and the timing of her actions that really pleases Jesus here. He says, you have done a beautiful thing to me. The lovely words on Jesus' lips, aren't they? So what then is it that this woman knows that everybody else in the story seems blind to? What is it that she knows that no one else seems to see? Well, we get a clue, don't we, in the back part of verse 7 in Mark chapter 14. Have a look with what it says. Have a look with me there, what it says. Jesus says, they will always have the poor, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And Jesus is saying the time has come, in fact, it's very near for him to be buried, for him to be killed. And I want to just remind you as we come into Easter that that there's no doubt, is there, that Jesus knew what was about to happen to him. If you've been reading through Mark's Gospel, then it should come as no surprise that he's speaking about his burial. We've seen many times that Jesus is aware of what's coming. He knows his death is imminent. He knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to rise from the dead. You know, it's almost universally accepted by historians, even non-Christian historians, that there really was a person called Jesus who lived in Palestine about 2,000 years ago. What's not universally accepted by historians is that he was the Son of God or that he was the Saviour of the world. And yet I want you to see here in this passage that Jesus knew who he was He knew that his burial was fast approaching. It's not just that he was a charismatic speaker or a really excellent teacher who got caught up in a revolution and killed accidentally. No, Jesus is fully aware of what is about to happen. He knows he's going to be buried. He knows he's about to be a dead man. And in the customs of these ancient burials, uh, bodies were often covered with spices or have perfume poured out of them, I think as a way to, to keep the smell of decay away. And indeed, if you read on in the story, you'll see that on that first Easter Sunday, the women go to the tomb, they're going to put spices onto Jesus' body, but he's not there because he's risen. Does the woman in the story know this? Maybe, but maybe not. The story doesn't tell us. But what the story does show us is the devotion of this woman towards Jesus. Maybe the woman had had a personal encounter with Jesus at some point. Maybe he had healed her or someone in her family. But this woman seems to understand something about Jesus that the others in the story haven't yet been able to grasp. Now, I'm not sure that we can know what that is, but Mark wants us to be thinking, doesn't he? What is it that this woman knows? Maybe, just maybe, she'd come to know that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. Maybe this knowledge and this understanding is what lies behind her act of devotion and her act of love here. In verses 12 to 20, Jesus sends his disciples away to make 
preparation for the Passover meal. Now, there's nothing really surprising about this. The, the Passover was celebrated every year by Jewish people. Do you remember what it was about? Hundreds of years earlier, the Israelites were held captive in, in Egypt, and Pharaoh, who was the Egyptian king, refused to let the Israelites go. They were very good slaves, and he refused to let them go. And so there were a series of devastating plagues that swept across Egypt. And one night, God told Moses that an angel of death would, would move through Egypt and would kill the firstborn males in each household. This destroyer would spare no one unless the blood of the lamb had been sprinkled onto the doorframe of the house that you lived in. Let me read to you a bit from Exodus chapter 12. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. See, the blood of the lamb, it causes the destroyer to pass over the house, hence the name of the festival. Now come back with me to Mark's gospel and the disciples are sharing this Passover meal together and it just seems to be going as a normal Passover meal would be until we get to verse 22 in Mark chapter 14. And there Jesus takes bread and he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples. And he says, take it, this is my body. And then he takes the cup this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And we can see Jesus, what he's doing here is he's helping us as readers to see him as the Passover lamb. The one whose body is broken and whose blood is poured out so that the destroyer might pass over. Can you see that? I wonder if the woman with the perfume had come to see Jesus in this way. Because there's really no other way, is there? If you go back to chapter 10, we looked at this before, but back in chapter 10 in the story of the rich man, after Jesus had told the rich man to sell everything he had, well, we're told the man's face fell. And Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed and saddened, and they then said, well, who can be saved? Because here's the thing with that rich ruler, he was the very best of the best. If the rich and the obedient can't be saved, then who can be? What hope have we got? And Jesus goes on to say, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. See, I think that back in chapter 10 of Mark's gospel, Jesus knows where this is all heading. He knows that for people to be saved, he will have to act. He knows that no matter how hard people try, they'll never measure up to the standard that God sets and the standard that God deserves. And so in his mercy and grace, God sent the true Passover lamb into the world, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And I wonder if the woman with her $100,000 worth of perfume had maybe grasped just a little bit of this. See, regardless of her motivations... Her actions show us, don't they, that she was devoted to Jesus. 
And I think that should get us thinking about ourselves. Are you devoted to Jesus? And if you are, how do you express that devotion? Now, Jesus isn't physically with us today, so even if you wanted to go to your bathroom cabinet and and get out that bottle of Gianni Viva Solomon 6, we we can't physically pour over him anymore because he's not here. Devotion is expressed today in a different way, isn't it? And all of us will do that in a slightly different way, but one thing is in common, I think, and that is that devotion has some connection towards time. I mean, think about how you spend time with others or what you spend time on, probably related to what you're devoted to. Think about like a middle-aged man who likes fishing. Don't think too hard about who that might be, but think about a middle-aged man who likes fishing. Think about what they like to spend time doing, going fishing. And when the weather's not very good, then they read books on fishing or watch YouTube channels on fishing. Maybe they even pull their boat out of the garage on a cold, windy day and wash that boat and then just put it away. They express devotion in terms of the time they spend with those things. When did you last spend good time with Jesus? could be that you're here today and you don't feel very devoted to Jesus. Maybe you don't feel that you really need Jesus. Well, I want you to see something in this woman, something that this woman understood. I want you to see that by coming with me to Luke chapter 7. I don't have this one on the screen, so you'll have to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Here we learn a little bit more about this woman. I think this is probably the same story in Luke chapter 7. It's slightly different though. In Luke chapter 7, verse 36, we read this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. She stood behind him at his feet weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair kissed them and poured perfume on them. In Luke's account of what's probably the same story, the woman is described as someone who lived a sinful life. And in Luke's account, Jesus goes on to tell a parable about a moneylender who forgave two people. One of those people owned 500 denarii, the other only owed 50. And Jesus asked the question, who's happier? And of course, the one who owed 500 denarii is more happy having had that debt wiped. And here's my point. If you're feeling a bit low on devotion today, well, in the lead up to Easter, I'd love you to consider how much Jesus has done for you. I'd love you to think through and over your life. For who of us can say that we haven't lived a sinful life? Maybe we need to see who we really are so that we can appreciate what we're being saved from. Maybe we need to see Jesus for who he really is. I reckon that the woman in this story really understood these things well. She must have seen something of the glory and the majesty and the power of Jesus. She must have had, I think, some inkling of what was coming up, that Jesus was the Passover lamb. Friday this week is Good Friday. We're meeting in this room 
to work through the next section in Mark's Gospel. It's about Jesus in the garden. And there we'll see Jesus wrestling with what's about to happen. And we'll see his obedience to God the Father and in that his love for us. I hope Good Friday is a wonderful tonic to top up your sense of devotion towards Jesus as we see the love he has for us and what that love cost him. I want to encourage you this morning to not be like the religious leaders or not be like Judas in this passage. And I want to encourage you to be like the woman in this story, to be devoted to Jesus, to love him, to think about him, to live for him and to worship him. I'm going to pray that we would do that individually and as a church. Father, we thank you for this story that helps us to see how a woman responds to Jesus. Thank you for her devotion. Thank you that Jesus calls this action a beautiful thing for him. We pray that you would help us to be devoted to you, that your spirit would be at work in us, reminding us of, of what you've done for us, reminding us of our predicament without you, and reminding us of the great love that you have for us. And please use that re reality and that truth to help us be more devoted to you. Amen.